support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today we have a bit of a special episode. We have a guest host, Verge senior reporter Addie Robertson is here. Hey, Addie. Hey. Addie, you were in South by Southwest in Austin, Texas uh, over the past couple of days, and you spoke with Margrethe Vestager, who is the executive vice president at the European Commission for a Europe fit for the digital age, that's the name of one of her task forces, and competition, which makes a little bit more sense. Uh, that basically means that she is in charge of a lot of the antitrust initiatives we see coming out of the EU, both enforcement, and we should talk about that, and the Digital Markets Act, which is a new regulatory scheme for some of these big tech companies. Uh, How did you end up talking to her at South by? She was at South by Southwest actually for a talk about disinformation uh, and then more generally for anything that was at the intersection of European politics and digital tech. So she's at this point much bigger than just antitrust, but antitrust is still a big part of what she does. And it feels like she is pretty clear that small companies should behave one way and big companies should behave a different way. You got into that a little bit in your conversation Did that come through in her sort of larger disinformation talk or her larger how to regulate tech talk? We talked a little bit about disinformation and the way that it relates with sanctions. And in those cases, it doesn't necessarily. But more broadly, yeah, the things she's worried about are what the Digital Markets Act refers to as gatekeepers, where there are these really big, powerful linchpin companies. And those things, her argument is, end up strangling smaller competition. And that's the sort of big problem with them. Vestager is pursuing a laundry list of enforcement actions against all the big tech companies, Meta, Google, Apple, Amazon, you name it. You go through those with her in this conversation. Broadly, something you and I have talked about before is Europe has long tried to regulate or fine or somehow shape the behavior of tech companies. And I don't know that it has worked. I'm just wondering, do you see any connection between things like we're going to make Microsoft offer a choice of browsers on Windows or we're going to make Google disaggregate Android and Chrome and what is happening now? Is it getting more aggressive or is it all kind of the same here's Europe doing stuff kind of approach? 
a lot of this has involved so far the kind of decisions you're talking about, but also fines that are sizable, especially compared to the U.S., but aren't necessarily enough to really disincentivize companies from doing things that they're told not to. We've seen this with Apple recently, that there was a European fine that they have just opted to pay around App Store fees. And so that's partly what the Digital Markets Act is about, is that it's supposed to add teeth to a lot of these regulations and to let the EU enforce more of the spirit of the laws that are on the books rather than trying to catch these really specific cases and offering fines that then maybe are not that hard to pay. Talk about the Digital Markets Act for a minute. I feel like Decoder listeners may or may not know what's happening there and then the process by which European Union and European Commission laws become active is somewhat opaque. I think in general, I think it might be designed to be opaque, but talk about the Digital Markets Act, where it is and and when it might become the actual law in Europe. The Digital Markets Act is in the final stages of negotiation and it's supposed to go into effect in early 2023. And what it does is set up this series of criteria that can designate a big company as a gatekeeper. And then if it meets these criteria, which are supposed to be very clear, then it's banned from a sort of laundry list of activities that are already criticized frequently, like self-preferencing or using data that it gathers from third-party sellers if you're a company like Amazon that then it doesn't share with them. So it's supposed to, we talk about this a little bit in the interview, but clean up antitrust law to an extent that it's supposed to codify a bunch of things that regulators are already trying to do. How does that play into what's happening in the United States? I tend to think of it as Europe is much more aggressive than the United States, but obviously the Biden administration came in. Uh, Lena Khan is at the FTC. Tim Wu has an antitrust position The idea is that the United States will get more aggressive here. What is the compare and contrast between the two? Interestingly, the EU is actually following some U.S. lead at this point. They announced a probe into Jedi Blue, which is the alleged ad deal between Meta and Google, and that started as a U.S. case. But in general, the U.S. has gotten more aggressive on trying to launch probes and enforcement against these companies. It has had a lot of trouble passing legislation, and it's just not at the same point that the EU is. The EU has been working on this for years. The U.S. is still trying to spin things up. All right. I think we ought to let people hear all this from Margarita herself. Here is Verge senior reporter Addy Robertson in conversation with the European Commission's EVP for competition, Margarita Vestager. Here we go. Executive Vice President Vestier, welcome to Decoder. Well, thank you very much. So let's start by just laying out the field of antitrust enforcement right now for the EU. Would you be able to go through the big cases that are on the table right now? Friday, we just uh, opened a new case with Google and Facebook. Now, Meta is called Jedi Blue, uh, named after the code name for an agreement that they seem to have gone into back in 2018 uh, with the aim, uh, seemingly, to try to kill off Google competitors in the advertising ecosystem. We also have another uh, Google uh, case, but then it's 
exclusively focusing on Google and the ad tech stack. They are fully vertically integrated here, and we're looking at some of the behaviors that seems to be uh, anti-competitive. Then we have three Apple cases, one concerning music streaming services and the 30% fee. We have a more general Apple uh, App Store case, and then we have an Apple Pay case about the access to the payment infrastructure or, or technology on your phone. We have two Amazon cases, one concerning access to data. Seems as if Amazon retail have had access to all the data from the smaller retailers uh, on the Amazon marketplace, enabling Amazon retail, of course, to have a head start and numerous products and prices having access to really, you know, good, uh, high quality information about behavior in the marketplace. Second uh, Amazon case is a case about their fulfillment system and whether or not being part of that will promote you in the buy box. We have a Facebook case concerning also uh, advertising in the, in the Facebook uh, environment. So, you know, our to-do list is quite full. It is. And you also have new regulations that are going to, in theory, be coming into force reasonably soon. Yes. Some of the things that I have learned over these seven years is both that some of these behaviors, they are systemic, and then you need a systemic answer, but also that we need to gain speed. Because if, uh, if illegal behavior is allowed to continue for, uh, for actually not even that long time, well, then the risk that competitors will suffer and because of that consumers will suffer is really big. So uh, with the Digital Markets Act, we want a very simple fundamental thing. We want the market to be open and contestable. So it depends on your ideas, your work ethics, your ability to attract capital, uh, whether you'll be successful with your customers or not. And unfortunately, because of the systemic nature of behavior, well, that's not necessarily the case today. Would you be able to go through some of the specifics of the Digital Markets Act? Yes. The idea is to say, well, if you are successful and you're more than welcome to be successful in the European market, then, of course, you grow in market power. But if you grow in market power, you should also grow in responsibility. So we have developed a set of objective criteria. And if you fall into those, we will designate you as a gatekeeper. That will give you a to-do list and a do-not list. So prohibitions and obligations. A prohibition could be that you're not allowed to self-preference. So, you know, always put yourself up first, uh, also in, uh, in neighboring markets, then the market where you really are the gatekeeper. And an obligation uh, could be to share data, that if you are in the marketplace, that you actually do get the data that your own business is generating uh, for yourself uh, and for the development of your business. You've talked about enforceability being the kind of last piece of the puzzle for the Digital Markets Act. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means and what it's going to require? Well, sometimes it, it makes me feel very old, but having been working with legislation for a huge majority of my life, obviously I have realized that legislation is only as good as its enforcement. So it's, it's really important that we get the enforcement set up in a way that it will work on ground. Because we have a lot of ambition, but they should come real in everyday life for businesses who want to be in an open, contestable market. And these things are not trivial. It's not trivial to designate a gatekeeper. It's not trivial to have sort of the regulatory dialogue so that we know that gatekeepers, they actually do know what they're supposed to do or what they're supposed not to do. 
So that is the, the last piece of the puzzle that we are pushing now uh, in the late phase of the negotiations of the Digital Markets Act. You talked a little bit about this, but I just want to expand on it more. What are the key elements of making sure this is enforceable? Well, one of the things is to maintain the commission uh, who has the responsibility for the enforcement. We have very, very good experiences in working with national competition authorities. And we need all resources to be mobilized in order to enforce this. But we should maintain that it's the commission who has the last word, who would take the decisions and enforce uh, this piece of legislation. And in the last phases of a negotiation, you know, sometimes you need also to take a step back and to make sure that you get the fundamentals right in order for the legislation not to be challengeable because uh, there develops a difference between the legal basis uh, of the regulation and the actual content uh, of the regulation. So it's really about staying focused in the last part of a negotiation so that things actually do match. uh, And we know that what is in the regulation is things that we actually have a very clear idea about how will this work in real life. Mm -hmm. What are some examples of things, of cases that we might be able to see with the Digital Markets Act that we haven't been able to get going so far? Well, Hopefully, a lot of things will be solved before it becomes a real issue. Because the entire idea, of course, is that we do not want more markets to tip. We do not want things to happen because of illegal behavior in the marketplace. And deciding beforehand, based on objective criteria, that you do have these obligations. These are the things that you should do. These are the things that you cannot do. That will speed things up. Uh, Because when we open a competition case today, the first thing we do is to assess whether the business is dominant in the relevant market. That in itself can take a surprisingly long time. And only if we can prove dominance do we have a case. Because a smaller business, a business that's not dominant, can do a huge number of things that the dominant company cannot do. Because only when the dominant company is doing it there is a real danger for, for harm be done in the market. And speeding things up by saying sort of before you get started, you are now designated a gatekeeper should give us that speed in making sure that the marketplace is, is open, that there is no self-preferencing, that people actually, businesses get their data, that um, app stores are, are open, that a second app store can be in your phone if you would want it to. And that kind of, of speed, I think, is is mirroring what is also the nature of digital markets. I think there's a sort of sense of cynicism often around tech company enforcement that the companies will just opt to pay a fine or they'll get a sort of monetary slap on the wrist. How does this address that? Well, it's not just theory. The Dutch competition authorities, they have had an Apple case where they have asked Apple to change their behavior in the way that they do set up with, with some of, uh, of their customers in the App Store. And so far, Apple has not implemented those changes. And because of that, they pay a weekly fine. Uh, I think it's 5 million euros. And, you know, that is really thought-provoking because the idea, of course, of, from the Dutch authority is that implementing those changes, you'd have a more fair market situation. And this is why in the Digital Markets Act, you know, there is a full toolbox where the sanctions, they become more and more severe. The fines will increase 
if you do not uh, implement uh, changes. Eventually, in the toolbox, there's also the tool that you can actually break up a company if no change is happening or if you are a repeat, repeat offender. What is the interplay right now between EU and U.S. regulation and also enforcement? Like the Jedi Blue case you mentioned, it began as a state's lawsuit in the U.S. Yes, uh, we have taken the inspiration from the uh, state attorney general in Texas who has filed this uh, suit. And, uh, and we have opened uh, with the CMA of the U.K., and I think it shows that there is a sense of, of alignment. We do not have a global competition authority. We have many different competition authorities. But there is a new sort of sense of common purpose here for the market to, to stay open. You know, I keep a map uh, <laughs> where I can sort of pin, oh, now the Australians, they are, they are into this behavior. Now the Indians are into that behavior. Now the South Americans, they are looking into this. And, you know, there is a pattern showing that competition authorities all over the planet are zooming in on the digital economy in order to make sure that markets are competitive, that every business have a fair chance. Also, with, uh, with the U.S. colleagues, we have a very close uh, cooperation. As a sort of parallel thing to the Trade and Technology Council, we have a policy dialogue between the U.S. and EU on competition in, in tech-driven markets. Uh, we had the first uh, interaction of that, and that was, I think, very successful. may take some time before we do common cases, also depending on the market situation, obviously. But I think sort of the alignment as to how we see these markets, that is increasing more and more. Yeah, you mentioned Australia. There are places like Korea that are working on antitrust. What are the places that you are sort of focusing on where you think the most interesting things are happening outside the U.S. and Europe? Well, I'm not really picky. <laughs> I think a lot of interesting things are ongoing because in some jurisdictions they are they have a kind of the same idea that the specific law enforcement in specific cases should be complemented with regulation. That you need the two to work together to achieve what you want to achieve. We are not one competition authority or we do not act as one competition authority because we have different tradition, differences in legislation, different uh, tools that we can use. But I find it really encouraging that there is a, a different sense of community when it comes to enforcing in, in tech cases. When we come back, we're going to talk about how Margaret decides which cases to bring or not to bring against big tech. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com decoder. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Margaret Vestier. For your agency specifically, because there is just this absolutely vast swath of potential cases you can Mm -hmm. focus on, how do you pick where you're going to focus enforcement actions? Well, obviously, it's uh, it's really important for us when, when people complain, because that gives us access to how they see the market situation. Very often they come with their data that allows us to ask more qualified questions to find uh, evidence if evidence uh, is to be found. And what we also do is that we're really careful uh, to scope the cases so that we focus on what may be the most harmful illegal behavior. And those two phases sort of, what is the complaint about? Is there something to it? And then scoping the case is, of course, what allows us to have the most uh, efficient use of resources. And we, of course, hope that the Digital Markets Act will take care of some of the cases we had before, allowing us to focus on some of the issues that the Digital Markets Act will not deal with. And one of the things would be uh, something like the Jedi Blue case, where we are investigating whether there is an agreement between Google and Facebook to the detriment of competitors to Google in in the advertising uh, ecosystem. You've talked a little bit about how you want to, in theory, regulate the metaverse, but it's still very early days Mm. and you're kind of trying to figure out what it is along with a lot of other people. What will it take to staff up your agency and to develop the expertise that you would need, do you feel like, to go after potential violations there? Well, metaverse or, or no metaverse, we are in the process of, uh, of, of changing the composition of, of people. We can hire more people who have technical capabilities. We use much more technical digital tools than what we are used to do. Uh, otherwise, our work is simply not possible. Because if we ask for, uh, send a request for information, you may get, you know, millions of documents. And you can only go through that with digital tools. So already now, we are changing. Also to make sure that we can cater for access to file for the businesses that we are investigating so that we can live up to every you know, letter and spirit of, uh, of due process. So we are already in a period of change and have been that for some time. Where that would lead us, I think, still remains to be seen. But it's it's something that needs to happen also before we sort of say, okay, now there is an established thing uh, that we could call the metaverse, uh, because already now uh, we need more than what would be sort of in the curricula of uh, of a even an accomplished uh, competition lawyer. Mm-hmm. 
I'm also curious about the crypto and cryptocurrency space. I'm curious how you have started looking into that and what point you're at with figuring out the lay of the land there. Well, from a competition perspective, it's early days. My colleague, Mairead McGuinness, who is responsible for, um, for financial matters, is, of course, watching this very carefully. Also because the European Central Bank and the different national central banks, they are considering uh, to make a digital euro. Basically, you know, to sort of to take back part of uh, what is quite essential in monetary policy, that you actually issue means of payment, but to do that in a similar way, only that it's not a cryptocurrency, it's a real official currency, so to speak. But it's something that we follow very closely, because when it comes to things of payment uh, and financing, it's really complex cases. But the thing is that very often it's hidden from people what they actually pay to pay. And this is why it's uh, these kind of cases is always a priority for us because it's a cost for consumers that very often is really difficult for consumers to relate to. Do you see there being potential competition issues in the crypto space? It's a big deal of about it is supposed to be that it's decentralized, but there are exchanges and NFT marketplaces that have turned out to be these things that are very close to gatekeepers in the space. Well, we haven't had complaints about it uh, yet. So it still remains to be seen what specific cases may develop in the future. I wanted to talk maybe specifically a little bit about the Digital Services Act, which Mm -hmm. is the sort of counterpart to the Digital Markets Act. I'm specifically interested in the intermediary liability, the liability of platforms when there is illegal content. Just maybe to start, would you be able to lay out how you see that working? Well, the Digital Services Act uh, is both addressing content but also products. When it comes to products, uh, platforms would have an obligation to know their business customers in order to know if these business customers actually can live up to what you're supposed to live up to to make sure that your products are safe, that people can come back and complain about them, that they have their consumers' rights. When it comes to content, two obligations. One would be to take down things that are considered to be illegal if flagged, while at the same time, if content of yours is taken down, that you can complain about it. And second, that you do sort of a horizontal risk assessment as to whether or not your services can be misused, undermining democracy or bringing people's mental health at risk. And if these risks are being found, you need to mitigate them. And when it comes to to liabilities for the platform themselves, that would only kick in if people can make the assumption that it's actually the platform was behind this. Uh, I think it's easier to to understand when it's uh, physical products. If you don't realize that you're dealing with a business that is on a platform, but think that it's actually the platform that you're dealing with, then the platform may resume liability, uh, otherwise not. For removing illegal content, especially this is a very hot topic in the U.S., Mm. and there's a fear that this is going to lead platforms to take down content very indiscriminately, to say, look, we'd rather be safe than sorry, and to maybe over-moderate things, especially from vulnerable groups that may then not fully understand the process of trying to get it put back up. How do you see the Digital Services Act addressing that? But this is exactly why people should get notified and have a chance of having their postings back up again. It, it is a difficult thing to do because there is a gray zone here. 
where things are not illegal, but they may be hurtful for people. There may be conflicts uh, coming from it. But it's your right to say whatever you, you want as long as it's not illegal. So, so this is why we have crafted this balance between, on the one hand side, taking things down, if flag to you being, it being illegal, while at the same time having an obligation towards the people that they can get things back up again. We think that this will work because, of course, over removal is a risk uh, that we're trying to avoid. What do you feel like the effect of if something like the Digital Markets Act reduces the power of big gatekeepers and big tech platforms, what effect do you see that having on the other issues that people are worried about on the Internet, like, say, disinformation? I think here different tools are needed. It's my, my colleague, Vera Jurova, who's been, been responsible for this uh, over the years in the commission and for how to uh, work with the platform based on the code of conduct. We've just strengthened the code of conduct. Uh, all the big platforms, they have signed up for it. TikTok, um, Google, yeah, all the big ones. And here, I think the, the cooperation is, is quite good. And it has been essential uh, also during the pandemic in order for, for people to know that if you read something about vaccine, well, here is the place to go if you want vetted official uh, vaccine information. For us, it's really important not to think that there is one silver bullet because to make the digital world a fully integrated part of our world, well, many things need to happen at the same time. And I think the code of conduct combined with the regulation, that's a balanced and, and probably the most effective way to go about it. That's kind of the thing is that I think there's this broad understanding that we often want to lessen the power of gatekeepers. We want to have fewer central choke points for the Internet. But at the same time, as we've seen with the war in Ukraine, having these big central gatekeepers has created a way to sort of cut off things that people think of as unwanted propaganda. And it seems theoretically possible that if you lessen the power of these companies, you suddenly don't have these points where you can exercise control over something like disinformation. Do you see, is that something that you've thought about? It's quite a, a special situation that we're in because we see uh, the actions here as part of the sanctions because uh, Russia Today and, and Sputnik, they are completely state-controlled uh, media. So we see them as part of the war machine the propaganda that comes from it. And this is why it's part of the sanctions. So it's not considered to be sort of part of media plurality in member states. And this being part of the sanction is also why it, it works all over the union uh, at the same time. But I don't, I don't see that there is a need just to have a few gatekeepers for that to be effective. Because even if there were many more outlets uh, for these media, well, they would also be on board uh, to do this. What do you think are the broader lessons right now that we can draw from the digital response to the war in Ukraine? Of course, this is a very extreme situation, but it, it, it makes us, I think, focus also on something. I think it's a very old truth that the first victim in, in a war is truth. Uh, because it becomes increasingly difficult to trust what you're being told. And having social media, of course, that amplifies propaganda, but also misinformation to a completely different degree as to what it was just 10 years ago. So 
uh, I think this this cooperation uh, with any platform is quite crucial because also in a war, even as horrible as it is on ground, for the people who are being shelled, for, for people being bombed, it's, it's also a war on on how you see the war. And that is an integrated part of the war. And this is why it's so important that we have this good cooperation with the platforms for the propaganda not to be able to remain there. I should uh, probably let you go, but maybe my last question is that for the last few years, we've gone through what people are sort of dubbing the tech lash. And I'm curious if you think that's something you feel like has been more of a moment or if it has been a permanent shift and you see it as putting public opinion on a completely different trajectory. I think it's a permanent shift because from the very early days of digitization, maybe we didn't really notice that it grew to have such an importance in our lives. But the thing was that as our digital world grew, it sort of pushed back on where our democracy has to say because the, the physical world became of less and less importance in, in many people's lives. What they do online takes up a lot of hours every day. And what is happening right now is that democracy, you know, is coming back in to say, well, no, also in the digital world, democracy counts. Also in a digital world, it must be so that what we agree is illegal actually is illegal and is treated as such. And what is legal is legal and treated as such. And that, I think, is a permanent thing, that democracy is coming back to be able to govern uh, our society also when it's digital. Thank you. That's been wonderful talking to you. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Margaretha Vestager for taking the time to talk to our special guest host, Addie Robertson, today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com, or you can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode is recorded in the field at South by Southwest by Addie Robertson. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on home mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.